This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. From our offices overlooking New York's Riverside Park, this is the Commonweal Podcast. On this episode, I speak with Notre Dame's Kathleen Sprose Cummings and contributing writer Massimo Fagioli on the ongoing crisis of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Associate Editor Matthew Sittman talks to author Sam Adler-Bell about his review in Commonweal of Jonah Goldberg's Suicide of the West. Our literary columnist, Anthony Domestico, interviews the poet Michal O'Shiel about his latest work, The Five Quintets. And I join Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and Commonweal intern Lucy Grinden in a discussion about the 20th century sculptor Alberto Giacometti. This is the Commonweal Podcast. It has been a long and trying several months for the Catholic faithful, beginning with allegations that former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick was guilty of sexual misconduct with seminarians and of sexual abuse of at least one minor, followed by the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report detailing 70 years of sexual abuse in six dioceses and cover-up by bishops, and the release of an 11-page testimony from Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, former nuncio to the United States, leveling sweeping charges against U.S. and Vatican Church officials, including Pope Francis, for mishandling the claims against McCarrick. To get a sense of where things stand now, I spoke with Kathleen Sprose Cummings, who's the director of the Kushwa Center for the Study of American Catholicism and an associate professor in the Department of American Studies and History at the University of Notre Dame. I also spoke with Commonweal contributing writer Massimo Fagioli, who's a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University, and whose article, Flirting with Schism, is available now on our website. I talked first with Kathleen. So it's been several weeks since the release of the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report in your piece in the New York Times. Have you seen anything in the interim that suggests where things might be headed in terms of reform? No, Dominic, it's been three weeks since I actually wrote that article. And I ended the article by wishing that I'd hear some contrition from church leaders, all of them, not just the ones who were directly implicated in this latest scandal, but all of them. And I have to say that I I haven't seen that level of contrition at this point. And I think that until we have public acknowledgement of Bishop's culpability in this larger scandal, I have doubts that we're going to see any of the wholesale reform I think is necessary. You know, in your uh, piece, too, and I think in uh, some appearances following uh, the appearance of their piece in The New York Times, you discussed some of the responses and the demands made in the aftermath of the report, suggestions such that all U.S. bishops be asked to resign. And that's something that we touched on in a Commonweal editorial as well. And I'm wondering what you think of some of those demands that people are making in the aftermath of the release of this report. Yes, I did see the calls for bishops to resign. And what I had suggested in my piece was that it was time for the bishops to voluntarily relinquish their place at the table in the sense of not so much that I was demanding that they resign, but that they 
should come to terms with their own culpability and perhaps resign. And uh, we're certainly not seeing that. You made another call in your column for statements that you'd like to hear from the pulpit, from clergy or from church officials anywhere along the lines of, we're no longer worthy of your sacred trust. And I guess I take it you haven't heard or heard of any such statements of abdication of power anywhere. Is that right? No, I've spoken with many priests privately who express their own pain and their own sorrow. But no, certainly if anything, I've heard people say, well, this is the time to be supporting the worthy priests. And I did say that there are many worthy priests and friends with many of them, colleagues with many of them. My point was that this is not the time to point that out, that this is the time to come to terms with the gravity of this crisis. And before we can move forward, there has to be an admission of, of guilt, of collective guilt. In the piece as well, you wrote that my once polite requests for incremental reform have morphed overnight into demands that church leaders voluntarily relinquish their place at the head table. What were the types of incremental reform you had envisioned once and that you now believe are non-functional? I think what crystallized for me in the wake of this latest Pennsylvania report is it just made me angry. I look at the stories of these women now and I see what a colossal waste of time and talent and gifts. Catholic women in the past, many of them sisters, who really couldn't get anything done unless they cultivated sympathetic clerical allies or tiptoed around imperious bishops who demanded that they be subservient. And, you know, I used to present these stories as they offer us hope and encouragement. And if these women still kept the faith in the wake of these challenges that they've been experiencing for centuries, then maybe we should have hope for gradual change and You know, the church takes a long time to change. This was my line. This is, you know, and I would say it, I think, very tactfully and again, humor. I'm more inclined now to to say, look, this has been going on a long time. And the gravity of this particular crisis would have become apparent far sooner and its consequences far less devastating if there had been women included in conversations about how to deal with abuser priests. Mm -hmm. And what about in terms of sort of uh, practical aspects to that, when you talk about women being involved in these discussions, how would you envision that? Or what is there something that you would propose or, or like to see specifically? I teach at Notre Dame and I taught a new class last semester called Faith and Feminism in America. And it wasn't just about Catholicism. It was on faith more broadly defined. And my students asked me a lot. You know, we looked at the issue, for example, of women's ordination in the Catholic Church. We looked at that historically. And they didn't even know that that had been a conversation. And they were asking me a lot of things like, Professor Cummings, why why don't we talk about it? Why am I a senior at Notre Dame, one student said, and I've never heard about this. We should be talking about this. And I gave my standard, well, you know, we talk about a lot of other issues, women in the church, and this particular issue is not salient right now. And now I think we need to be talking about everything. Mm -hmm. Everything should be on the table. Uh I've been thinking a lot about Mary, the Blessed Mother, in terms of the way the Catholic Church is so good at idolizing the feminine and motherhood. And the church is historically very bad at engaging with actual women, with mothers, with vowed women. And I think I just, I'm, my patience, as I announced to the world, apparently, in the New York Times, has just grown rather thin. Uh, you know, Kathleen, you've mentioned too in the piece, and you speak of sort of feeling like a gradualist in the past. Do you think it was this crisis, this specific sequence of events this summer that led you to the position, to the feelings you have now? Or did you sense this creeping up 
in some way or some fashion already beforehand. When I wrote the piece, I was convinced that it happened overnight. I think I used that word in there. And people said, well, what's different about the Pennsylvania report? What was different about this was the magnitude and the scope of it and the sense of these adjacent dioceses and bishops working together and how this all worked systemically, that it it wasn't, you could no longer make a case of this is just a few bad apples. It was the scale of it, I think, was much more dramatic. But as I've had time to reflect on it over the last three weeks, I think I probably could see it coming. And I think it is what's happening, you know, time's up, me too. I tell my students in Catholics in America that that when we look at that subject, we look not only what's happening in the church, but we have to look at what's happening in American culture. So I suspect that, yes, I was moving toward this by the larger situation in our culture right now. And those influences definitely played a part in it. Now that the school year started at Notre Dame again, what are you sensing from your students? I usually start the first day of class. I don't like to waste the first day of class. So I assign them some recent articles that they're supposed to come to class prepared to read to give an indication of where we're going in the semester. And this semester for two classes that I'm teaching, one called Catholics in America, the other called Sanctity and Society, I assigned a piece from Commonweal, actually, by B.D. McClay on Maria Goretti, a saint for a new sexual abuse crisis. And that worked really well. And I was able to see without sharing my own personal views, which I had published, you know, those were, I was speaking very personally there, not as a historian, But I was able to jump right into the conversation with them. And I can tell you that they are very concerned. I think it crosses, in addition to generational lines, it crosses gender lines as well. There are young men and women that are concerned. I see it a little more palpably with the women. They seem to be, well, they reacted more strongly to the article on Maria Goretti, perhaps not surprising. Thanks for joining us, Kathleen. You're welcome. Massimo, uh, some weeks have passed now since the release of the former nuncio's testimony, uh, which among a number of explosive charges also alleges that Pope Francis had full knowledge of improper behavior by former Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. Can you assess where things stand right now and what we know of where this might be headed next? Well, we know that most of the accusations leveled by Vigano against Pope Francis have collapsed because of the excellent work of, of reporting of uh, journalists, especially American journalists, which is what Pope Francis invited them to do on the flight back from Ireland. So there is a chronology of what happened with McCarrick, because the whole Vigano testimony begins with McCarrick. And it's clear that if something happened or something didn't happen when it was supposed to happen, was exactly during the pontificate of Pope Benedict. And so we know that Pope Benedict never issued formal penalties, but communicated an informal request to keep a low profile. And this request was repeatedly conveyed to Cardinal McCarrick by the predecessor of Monsignor Vigano in Washington, D.C., Nuncio Pietro Sambi, The interesting difference is that while Sambi, who died in 2012, made repeated efforts to keep McCarrick uh, on low profile, it seems that Archbishop Vigano, who now wants to look at the great moralizer, never tried to do this. And we have multiple 
videos of Nuccio Viganò praising McCarrick in public. In it. So the bulk of the, the accusation have collapsed. The question remains, how could it happen that McCarrick became the Archbishop Cardinal of the nation's capital? This is a question that is still there. Yet as of today, we're speaking on September 11th, uh, some weeks after the letter's release, Francis still hasn't really spoken publicly, even though six of the nine cardinals on the so-called C9 International Council of Cardinals recently expressed full solidarity with the Pope in the face of what has happened these last few weeks. And they say that they're aware that in the current debate, the Holy See is formulating possible and necessary clarifications. What does this statement of support signify, do you think? And why do you think Francis hasn't spoken publicly? And what does he stand to gain or lose by not being more directly forthcoming? So this statement by the C9 is important because it's the first statement of this kind issued by the C9. The whole C9, I think, is defending Pope Francis, uh, which is something that other bishops, especially in the US, haven't done. So here Pope Francis hasn't replied or gone into the questions during the flight from Ireland for multiple reasons. The first one is that this is one of the cases when it's not just enough that you try to tell the truth, is that the truth here must be extracted, liberated from a bunch of slander. And then there are three issues that I, I believe are important to understand why is letting other people prepare an institutional response. The first one is biographical. So Pope Francis has been subject to this kind of slander before by the Jesuits in Argentina and a second time when he was involved in the dirty war, he was accused of being an accomplice of the military junta. And he knows that these things take time for the truth to service. The second reason I think it's institutional, immediately after that document was published, it was clear that the real accusation was going to go against Pope Benedict. So the problem is that Pope Benedict is biologically alive, but is institutionally undead, which is a big problem because we know that he's keeping his silence, but his secretary, Monsignor um, Genswein, is talking a lot. And so this is a, an extremely complicated situation. The third reason I believe is is spiritual. So uh, Pope Francis has spoken multiple times in these last few weeks of the present moment in the life of the of the church as a kind of uh, massive global exorcism. This thing needs time for the whole evil forces to come out. And this is something that I understand it is frustrating for uh, the media, for journalists, but there is a spiritual vision of the church, of Francis, that I believe shapes his response here, but the, it makes sense. I don't think it is uh, fear or it is not taking care or not taking seriously. I think it is the opposite. Uh, at least seven other states are now opening investigations into the possible mishandling of sexual abuse claims by Catholic dioceses. So, what should we look for here in the U.S. in terms of what the American bishops might do next or what they should do next? Can we expect anything like 
uh, unanimity or collegiality in terms of articulated, coherent response to this? Well, it's a difficult situation for many reasons, especially one, which is that the Episcopal hierarchy now in charge of the USCCB is culturally, theologically known uh, not for being too enthusiastic about uh, collegiality and synodality. So here there are some parallels between, again, what happens in the Republican Party, the new elite that doesn't believe in government is elected to govern. And so, so this is very difficult. I think that the most urgent things to do are two. One is to send signals that this church is in communion with the Bishop of Rome. And the second is to re-establish some kind of visible communion in the Catholic Church in the United States, where some bishops clearly took the position of Archbishop Vigano, and implicitly they accused Francis of being a liar and asked him to resign, which is something that I see as a real wound in the body of the church. So, all of that said, I mean, this has to be done by these bishops that obviously are not very popular with Catholics. Uh, their unpopularity is bipartisan for different reasons. So it, it's a very hard test for them because it, it's a crisis that I don't think has similar cases around the world in these last few few decades. Thank you for your time, Massimo. Thank you. Thank you. The Commonweal Podcast is supported in part by the generosity of Commonweal's associates. To become part of this giving tradition, Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the donate link. Next, Commonweal's associate editor, Matthew Sitman, speaks with Sam Adler-Bell, a senior associate at the Century Foundation, which is a think tank in New York. Bell is the author of two recent articles for Commonweal. The first, a review of Capital Without Borders on Wealth Managers and the 1%, and more recently, a critical essay about Jonah Goldberg's best-selling book, The Suicide of the West. You can read both of Sam's articles on our website, commonwealmagazine.org. So welcome, Sam. Thanks so much. I'm really happy to be here. This review you published, it's a little over 3,000 words. I mean, it was a substantial treatment of this book. So just to begin and to give listeners a sense of who Jonah Goldberg is and what the, maybe the core idea of the book is. So Jonah Goldberg is a leader of what we might call the Never Trump conservative movement. He's a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He's probably like a contributing editor at... National Review. Yeah, he's had a long association with National Review. Yeah. Uh, including a podcast he does for them, right? Right. The Remnant. The Remnant podcast. Jonah is seen as kind of a 
avatar of the never-Trump right, the right that conceives of itself as kind of preserving the traditions of, like, the Buckleyite conservative movement. This book is very much in that vein. It's a book arguing against the tribalism that he sees as ascendant on the left and the right in our politics. So it's against Trumpian nationalism and, and tribalism, but also against what he sees as the tribalism of the left, which he kind of associates with socialist um, instincts and other communitarian economics and the social justice warrior, quote unquote, instinct on the left. The subtitle of this book, so main title, Suicide of the West, subtitle, How the Rebirth of Tribalism, Populism, Nationalism, and Identity Politics is Destroying American Democracy. So those things are what Jonah Goldberg sees as the basic threats to what he thinks of as the great inheritance of the liberal capitalist tradition in America. And he stretches that tradition back to John Locke and then moves forward to the American Revolution as the sort of universalizing of the principles that John Locke articulated in the English context. For Goldberg, the danger of this moment is that we've lost a kind of gratitude for the inheritance and the improbability of that inheritance in the sense that like we're very lucky to have liberal capitalism. Mm -hmm. He follows very closely the work of Deirdre McCloskey, who's an economic historian at Harvard. She's a much more sophisticated thinker than he is, yeah. but she is sort of a, a proponent of the thesis that there is this incredible, what Goldberg calls a miracle. She has a different word for it. The miracle, capital M. Capital right? M, capital yeah. T, capital M, the miracle Goldberg refers to, which is the sort of improbable confluence of political, philosophical, and cultural factors that create the liberal tradition at a particular moment. What Goldberg sees in Trump, perhaps in Bernie Sanders, in the modern Democratic Party, in the far right and the far left, is this kind of forgetting and hostility to this inheritance that we should be so grateful for, which has produced, I mean, in, in his view and in Deirdre McCloskey's view and many other, you know, self-understood classical liberals, has created, like, unprecedented wealth and development and progress. Right. Um, you mentioned at one point that he views liberal capitalism as kind of imposing hard disciplines on us, mm -hmm. that all our instincts, kind of our, our evolutionary heritage are, is geared toward the group, towards, you know, viewing government as in terms not appropriate to it, whether the analogies are like the family. At one point, you say, Obama's not your dad. Trump is not, you know, the person who's going to slay your enemies. Mm -hmm. So how does he, why is there so much dissatisfaction right now if actually we've been gifted kind of unprecedented prosperity? Why are we so ungrateful for it right now? He often says, and I think he says this multiple times in the book, that in the family, for example, in, in, our, in our communities, we actually are all socialists. We're, we're communitarians. We operate on the principle of to each according to their needs, from each according to their ability. I mean, if you have a special needs child or a disabled child of some sort, you're not going to treat them give them less resources than you give to your child who's more self-sufficient. And so, but his argument is that the danger of what he calls romantic thinking, which he stretches back to Rousseau, the danger of romantic thinking is this aspiration to transfer that communitarian impulse that we all have as a natural kind of genetic and evolutionary inheritance to governance. And that, he says, is what leads us to 
tyranny. Right. <laughs> right. Okay. To put it mildly. Yeah. And is there a reason that that's spiking now? It seems like both in his language and in the language you use in the review, like we're living in a, a populist moment. Yeah. So it's telling that it's not just that like Trump happened, yeah. but it's also that at the same time, Bernie Sanders happened yeah. and all these self-described socialists are now running for office, uh, mostly in the Democratic Party. But even the rise of Jeremy Corbyn in the UK, like it's it's sort of on the both the left and the right, there are these dissatisfactions emerging. And does he have any, why is that happening now rather than even 50 years ago? I don't think he has a great answer. I mean, I've been very, I've been being very generous to Goldberg right. in this discussion so far. Well, we can, and, and, we can become think, more critical now. I think, that I, I think that I was very generous in the review, and we've talked about this a lot. I think that there's a lot of benefit in writing and, and engaging with work that you fundamentally disagree with in good faith. I think that maybe one of the myopic aspects of his perspective is that he doesn't have a particularly good exp explanation why this is happening now. And I think that he would agree that there's a crisis of faith in liberalism and liberal capitalism. Goldberg is very infatuated with Schumpeter, seemingly like newly infatuated with mm -hmm. Schumpeter. And for him... This for is sure. Joseph Schumpeter, the uh, sort of political economist, uh, sort of most Hungarian, famous... I think. Yeah, like most famous in the like mid-20th century. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just as an aside, it seems clear that part of what Jonah Goldberg is trying to do with this book, this very long, very elaborately subtitled and very heavily and noted book, is establish himself as a as a very serious thinker in the conservative tradition. I think Jonah Goldberg is a, a savvy and smart thinker. He's not an intellectual heavyweight, mm -hmm. and this book. As opposed to his other books, which in some ways were sort of, I mean, he wrote a book called Liberal Fascism, which was very much kind of a, a troll on the right. on, on liberals. Hitler was a vegetarian <laughs> there, you know, yeah. and, and look, who, look who today's vegetarians are. Exactly. Yeah. It's more or less like <laughs> a slightly higher, more historically literate version of what Dinesh D'Souza is doing now. Right. But this book is his effort to say, no, look, I'm, a, I, I'm thinking deeply, engaging deeply with the conservative tradition. And I think he does that to some degree. But Schumpeter has this idea that there's a priestly caste of intellectuals, in effect, people mm -hmm. like us, who have, in the, as a consequence of capitalist growth and capitalist abundance, there's now a sort of bourgeois class of people who have nothing to do but think and write, and they don't actually have a particularly important role as they might have in a traditional society where religious clerical work was so fundamental to the maintenance of order. And so as a result, they do this kind of Nietzschean resentment thing where mm -hmm. they write uh -huh. against the existing order to preserve yeah. their own influence. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, a, I mean, Schumpeter is kind of an inversion of Marx, and I think mm -hmm. that Goldberg is sympathetic to this, which is that it's not that capitalism creates its grave diggers in the form of an increasingly ameliorated working class. It creates its grave diggers in, a, in an increasingly idle intellectual right. class, mm -hmm. which doesn't have a role in society and which therefore sublimates its uselessness into critiques of the existing social right. order. Well, so that's, you know, we've talked about the right, at least some of the fault lines on the right and where Jonah Goldberg fits into that. One of the ways you can read your review is as a defense of populism. Mm -hmm. You call it an idiom. I wonder if you could say more about that. I would say that my review is a defense of mass politics. 
not necessarily of populism as such, because I because as you say, I think populism is an idiom. It's a way of talking about politics. Mm-hmm. You know, populism is a political discourse in which you identify a we and you identify a them. You identify the people that we are, maybe, whether that's we the American people, we the working class, we the white people, or whatever else, and then a them, um, which could be the racial other, it could be the capitalists, it could be the bosses, it could be anyone else. And so populism is a way of creating like a political uh, unity and constituency around a sense of shared community and shared grievance or shared anger towards a particular other who is perceived as causing pain and destruction to the, right. to the group. Um, so that's not something that I think, I don't think populism is something that we can identif- define as universally in every instance, good or bad. The instinct towards community can have positive and negative impacts. And I think the defense of mass politics is some, something slightly different, which for me is just that the idea that any of the victories of the underclasses or the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the racially othered, that any of the victories that the broad have-nots have been able to achieve in America, all of them have been achieved by mass politics. Right? Right. They've been achieved, achieved by building very strategic constituencies using their particular power in relation to the market, in the case of strikes, the labor movement, or very savvily using their relationship to society in order to achieve victories. They're not something that are, that are possible or preordained if you only believe that political conflict takes place in conversation, in discourse. And so ultimately I found my main argument with Goldberg to be was that he believed that in effect, the, liberal, the great liberal tradition is one in which we can have our political arguments in this kind of imminent plane in which ideal values and arguments play out uh, mm-hmm. between people who are somehow equally positioned to make those arguments. But that's never been the case. I mean, something that we've talked about before, too, is the idea that conservatives look out into the world and see a world that they decide is pretty good, equal right. enough, pluralist enough, and imagine that somehow that world was achieved without massive political upheaval, revolutionary politics, mass politics. Right. Well, this might be an interesting further comment to make about the right, this fear or suspicion of of mass movements. And this is something that, like, Corey Robin would say is sort of definitional of conservative politics, which is that it's always a defense of existing hierarchies against movements that want to tear down those hierarchies in some way or, or make society more equitable. And is this kind of Goldberg almost unwittingly reprising that particular move that conservatives make that that kind of that there's an insurgent movement from below that's expressing some dissatisfaction with the status quo and pushing back on it is it a sort of where does it come from is it a fear of disorder is it a just you know a defense of privilege like what's yeah. You know, because and now, as you say, a lot of conservatives look back and say, well, like, of course, I was for this. I would have been for the civil rights movement. Right. Or, of course, I was for women getting getting the right to vote. You know, like what we think of as you know, the, the women's movement, New Deal, civil rights, all those things kind of once they're actually achieved, mm. conservatives, you know, uh, often make peace with them, at least in some fashion. But at the time, they never. Right. They never were really for them. 
I think you might be in better position to psychologize the, the, the <laughs> conservative movement than I, I am. But I think that, yeah, obviously there's a temperamental aspect to it. Yeah. Um, the sense of upheaval, the cha- changing norms, shifting hierarchies or the destruction of hierarchies is just kind of instinctively and temperamentally discomforting. And also, of course, I mean, we're... You know, I'm like a bad Marxist, but I'm still a Marxist of some sort. And, you know, people are motivated by ideological impulses, by incent- by their economic mm-hmm. interests and their their in- incentives to preserve their positions in power. So mm-hmm. obviously that's a huge part of what happens with conservatism. I mean, yeah. Corey Robin is an incredible thinker, and I think that his his rethinking of the conservative intellectual tradition is very compelling. I think that he's very influential on me. And I also think that I also think that I need to be inclined as a thinker to read uh, conservative thinkers in good faith and think that they're saying what they're saying because they believe them, even if they're ideologically, you mm-hmm. know, if those opinions they believe because of their position in society. Yeah. And so I try to do that. Going forward, what what gives you hope? Well, I think that the younger generations are both extraordinarily diverse and interested in and susceptible to radical egalitarian economics. I am very hopeful that the possibilities for egalitarian multiracial populism will grow and grow. I think that if many more young people vote in the next election, then I'll be even more hopeful. (laughs) But there is reason to be hopeful about the ascendant socialist wing of the Democratic Party and the Mm -hmm. increasing power of, or at least the increasing visibility of the Democratic Socialists of America, other groups that are committed to redistributive politics and economic egalitarianism. The fact is that the Republican Party has had, you know, multiple opportunities to sort of shift gears in a way that would have strategically benefited their continuing power. Certainly they've done it, as you mentioned, in terms of structural reforms that disenfranchise their opponents or their likely voters, likely people who vote against them. But they haven't done it in terms of sort of structural changes to the ideology of the party. Yeah. After Mitt Romney was lost, they um, said, well, we actually have to change this party so that it's welcoming to immigrants. (laughs) Right. They didn't do that. And even and much more terrifyingly, when Trump was elected, I think they did have an opportunity at least to stave off the left populist movement by embracing this kind of white economic nationalism that said that real white Americans ought to be have more economic power and ought to be yeah. more equal with people in power. And it was able to vilify people of color who have relative economic power in order to achieve that mm-hmm. ideological end. Luckily, by the grace of God, <laughs> they they fail to embrace that much more treacherous mm-hmm. path. Yeah. So. Well, that's good. Yeah, that is. That's helpful. <laughs> yeah. That seems that's more helpful. or less helpful. Yeah. And I, I would just note that one reason I'm hopeful is that evil cannot triumph because it's parasitic on the good. It's a privation. So in Augustinian terms, we know evil will not triumph. So, Well, that's very comforting to me. Uh, <laughs> I bet it is. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Sam. Thank you, man. <laughs> Come.
Commonweal is the leading independent Catholic journal of public affairs, religion, literature, and the arts. We offer a number of subscription options. Log on to www.commonwealmagazine.org and click on the subscribe link. Well, I first had the pleasure of meeting the Irish poet Michal O'Shiel at Fordham University during my senior year some 30 years ago, so I'm especially happy to introduce this next segment. Our literary columnist, Anthony Domestico, interviews O'Shiel for the Commonweal podcast. O'Shiel's newest work is The Five Quintets. We might just start by you telling me if there was a, a particular kind of intellectual or formal question that drove the kind of origins of the book. In the introduction, you have a really nice account of Charles Taylor's book, A Secular Age, and it seems like you're doing the same kind of large-scale synoptic intellectual history, but in poetic form. So I don't know if it grew out of your reading of these similarly ambitious works, or if you just found yourself at a particular moment kind of wondering how did we get here, or how you came to, to first get interested? I, I think it's a combination of these things, in mm-hmm. a sense, um, Tony. I think in this extraordinary age we're living in with the technological revolution we've experienced, and we're all running wild looking at emails and everything, I felt we needed to stand back and look at a little mm-hmm. bit at where we were, to take stock, to decide, and to try and see where we came from and where we might go to. I was fascinated by the idea that at the end of what we'd roughly call medieval times on the cusp of modernity, Dante came along and kind of summed up mm. where they were. Uh, I feel there's been some sort of paradigm shift mm. in our culture over the last, what, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, People will call it different things, obviously, and it's very hard to know, have we enough perspective on our own times ever to talk about eras, but it seems as if there's been a paradigm shift from overarching certainties to much less surety about these things, which some people will call post-modernity, some will call late modernity, or chastened modernity, many different names for it. Even liquid modernity comes Mm, up. Which I like that one. And so I felt that it was possible or I'd like to try in a to a long dramatic poem mm-hmm. um, looking at the same sort of 400 years that Taylor had looked at mm-hmm. but Taylor's book Charles Taylor's book is the history of ideas basically and I feel that what Dante did is to actually do it through people mm-hmm. I don't think you can separate out history from people so I'm fascinated by two things I'm fascinated firstly by the the phases of modernity that modernity seems to have gone through and ask myself who are the movers and shakers, so to speak, in the different disciplines of our culture. And the second thing that really fascinates me is the interplay between the personal lives, because mm-hmm. it's not just biographies and it's not just intellectual history, it's the combination, it's the interface between people where they have changed or had to shift the perspective of a culture. Their own lives have had a huge effect on this. Mm. Obviously, it's very much so in the arts. It's the same, clearly, in philosophy, stroke theology. In other words, in the quintet I call meaning and in the quintet I call making. Mm-hmm. But also in dealing, which is the one, uh, the quintet on economics, 
your view of economics, I think, also often is, is influenced by who you are and mm-hmm. your, the intermarriage of your life, so to speak, and the circumstances you're growing into and thinking about. Uh, the same is true for politics, even maybe more than economics in politics. Mm-hmm. Again, people's backgrounds shape yeah. their vision. So I think all of those things played in together. But then also doing it in poetry is very special, not just yeah. doing it because poetry allows you an intensification, mm-hmm. allows you a distillation for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think also what it allows is an imaginative engagement with it mm-hmm. so that you can have characters, these movers and shakers, talk with one another over time or mm-hmm. discourse between themselves, mm-hmm. which uh, is made possible by the imaginative act of poetry. Clearly, you could, to an extent, do that in prose as well, but you mm-hmm. wouldn't have, the, I think, the intensity and the distillation side mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. You're talking about taking this kind of large-scale conceptual project and rendering it in poetic form. So I'm interested in thinking about form a little bit. So first of all, you structurally divide the poem up into the the poet section, making, the economic section, dealing, the political section, steering, the scientific section, finding, and then I guess we could say the meaning section, meaning. Yes. Because there's philosophy and theology and and, and other disciplines there. How did you come up with those five as the kind of governing structure for the project? Were there other, you know, participles that you considered that... um... Yes, well, perhaps, I mean, but I think it comes in under politics and to an extent under economics. Perhaps law would have been another Mm. possibility, but it seemed to be subsumed by politics Mm. and by by, uh, economics. I was trying to get a broad picture Mm -hmm. of what stirs, what what steers a a society, Mm -hmm. and these seem to me to be the natural ones. Mm -hmm. Really interestingly, the, the five quintets have completely different forms. Yes, I differ from Dante there, because Dante goes for the Tetsurima throughout. Exactly. Yes. And so in making, you have this be- really beautiful form where you have sonnet written from your from the lyric eye, right? Then you have the kind of interstitial haiku. Haiku. Yes, yes. Then sonnet written from the perspective of the maker. Yes. Then interstitial haiku. Then sonnet written from the lyric eye perspective. Then interstitial haiku. And then sonnet written from yes, the, yes. the maker's perspective. Well, I wondered if you wouldn't mind reading just an example of you talking with a maker. At some point, we don't have to do that right yeah, now. We can do it for, later on. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there's a kind of brilliant formal enactment of conversation in that first section. But then you completely change form in the second section. What were you thinking formally as you were moving through the, through the book? I think I wanted to give, uh, to, to emphasize, you see, not only the um, horizontal Five, that's to say, the quintets. But I wanted also to give a—I mean, I wanted to give a unity to those quintets, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. and, and to make them distinctive, and differentiate yeah, between them. Yeah. So, so, they, so that they get a vis- different visual shape, and they get obviously a different, a different form. What, and what I've done—just let me describe what I've done first, and then I think I can possibly remember the genesis of some of them yeah, as, yeah. As, as it happened. But as, as to why I. Love what I call psychos, mm. which is uh, it's my own word. It's a portmanteau word to take in sonnet and psycho. I love the fact that it's the most traditional Eastern form and mm. the, the the most traditional Western form mixing. Uh, I also love the idea of the haiku being able to give a another level of comment. Mm. It's almost like the chorus in a Greek tragedy, or if you like the uh, um, like the the clown in Shakespeare. You know, mm. you're able to say things. 
at a different level. Mm-hmm. So I, I like that. I, being a little pedantic saying this, but I love the fact that saiku means a dainty piece of work in mm-hmm. Japanese. So it actually has a meaning as well, which is fun. Mm-hmm. And, and so it, it seemed to me that that was the best way to con- converse with the artists. Then to, to take the final one, the one on meaning, I want to do that in Terzurima in mm-hmm. some ways to echo Dante, but also it seemed a perfect form for, for meaning. Mm-hmm. And it flows and it allows a very lyrical ending, if you like, to mm-hmm. the whole thing. Uh, um, I went for iambic pentameter for the science one, uh, which is a difficult enough one because you're trying to... to I hope it works. Uh, and I feel that even if sometimes you don't follow the detail of the actual science, that the flow of it, the flow mm-hmm. of the iambic pentameter, pulls you along in a way that you get, you get the feeling of what's happening, even mm-hmm. if you don't get the absolute scientific detail you get mm-hmm. a sense of what's mm-hmm. happening and the development of it and, and the iambic pentameter seemed to work for that in the case of the second quintet that's to say the dealing the one on economics I've used a form where I've gone into quite strict rhyme form and then come out of it again with with some rhyme but less I think it's the third and sixth and mm-hmm. whatever I can't remember but when the actual person is speaking it, it's in more formal Mm. Uh, and what I was trying to do there I think was emphasise the conversational element and because they converse among themselves in the economics as well which is uh, is Dantean in a way too but that they should talk to themselves you know talk and and discuss among themselves that only leaves the politics one and the politics one I left fairly I mean it's rhythmically um, I hope consistent but I wanted that to be less formally poetic Mm. uh, in a way that would capture more the Mundanity, if you like, or the mundaneness of um, of political life. Mm-hmm. So, does that give you an idea as to what was going on? Were there any thinkers who particularly surprised you in the writing of their perspective? Well, everyone surprised me mm-hmm. because there's something, uh, and I'm sure you know this yourself. There's something takes over. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you go into a character, but the character takes over, takes you over in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have it's, uh, any player. I think would tell you the characters are not puppets. Mm-hmm. They take you where they want to go as well as you. you know, there's a mystery to it. Mm-hmm. There's a complete mystery to how these things work. Yeah. And the work takes you over. It, 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 again, it's the jazz factor. Mm-hmm. You don't know where it's... You start on it and you think you might know where you, But it takes you as well along. You, know, you, you try not to lose, to, to lose your way, but you can't, but you can't control it. Mm-hmm. There's a mystery there. Yeah, that's beautiful. Maybe we could do a uh, reading? I'm just trying to think if, I, if it was to be one. Maybe I should read the Dante one. That would be great. Because yeah. that sort of ties in with the whole yeah. thing. You know, maybe that's the one to do. I was trying to think of, in my mind, what the best was to do. Perfect. Still underground bulb, a deep and dormant thriving, lily in waiting. My Dante tend Nel mezzo del camin, forgotten bulbs, your times again on earth. Your gift to see a flowering unforeseen, to rake the soil for Europe's lush rebirth. A rich pre-modern mind allows you mix rife thoughts retrieved with things so up to date in science, art, or purse and politics. The cosmos is your seedbed city-state. Your lily sign, Firenze's exile sun. Why is that place assailed by so much strife? Who name and face dead figures one by one 
descending and ascending after life by conscious metaphor and fact combined, you parallel the purpose of God's mind. Overwintering, a year's adventitious roots, lily emerging. Ah yes, the middle of the way, and yet recall the years I yearned, a troubadour for Beatrice since May Day when we met, one fateful moment in 1284. I break new ground and graft a comedy. I'm politician, poet, citizen. Though love can shape a tongue in Tuscany, I end an exile, never home again. With Virgil, I will climb hell's deepest ice to reach the doorway of the dead and weep till Beatrice unknotting nerves in me redeems my guilt. And braving paradise, I dare allow my sacred poem to leap from where we are to where we're meant to be. Six luscious tapels, rich, indelible stamens, lily unseeming. Your polymath and eager pioneer, who doubling back becomes a daring scout, defining our modernity's frontier by summing up what somehow opens out. A fluke of birth, a lucky florowit as banished and uncuddled by soft fame. You blame defectors sham and counterfeit. Unhampered, your cold hell will name and shame. But more, as certain as a second thief, this day in paradise you too are shown the smile whose warmth unzips the lily's leaf, the light eternal in itself alone. You're stretching still my mind and my desire to walk our daring god of love's high wire. Spotted and brush-stroked, a glorious flourishing, star-gazer lily. But seven centuries beyond my theme, you've chosen to pursue the self-same path and summing up a nearer work the seam between the modern and its aftermath. You've climbed from hell to heaven's vertigo. I'll be your guide. Though dazzled in that gaze, allow flawed words their spill and overflow. For God delights in lily-gilding praise. Imagine all we've done or left undone. Our broken longings, longings still for more. Completed in the glory of one glance. And as both stars and atoms dance and dance, our lives unreal around one loving care, where all our wills and all desires are one. Beautiful. Do you enjoy the public readings? 
Yes, I do. I, I couldn't do them if I didn't. Yeah. I, I, I do, do enjoy them, but I find them quite exhausting. Yeah, I was going to yes. say, yeah, yes. I imagine it's like teaching, but more so, right? That physically and psychologically, you must just be wiped out. By yeah, I, I, I am tired. I mean, I used to be able to do them night after night. I'm not sure I want to do them night after night, though I'm going to have to do that when the book comes out, because I uh, Dublin one night, next night. Oxford next night Cambridge so, mm-hmm. so but I'll do it I mean uh, uh, it's uh, it's a sort of a harvesting mm. you know it's, and it's the tangibility of it is nice you know, mm-hmm. uh, um, but I was never I was always very careful to uh, I would give a lot of readings after a book came out because you want to support your publisher and get the book out there but at the same time I'd never wanted to get hooked on the performance side of it and mm-hmm. not get on with what you're really supposed to be doing <laughs> You can read Anthony's full profile and essay on O'Shiel on our website at commonwealmagazine.org. Finally, I took time to speak with Griffin Olenek and our summer intern, Lucy Grindon, about the 20th century sculptor, Alberto Giacometti, whose work was on exhibit at the Guggenheim in New York this past summer. I think independently, each of us realized that we had gone to see it at the Guggenheim, and this just came up at the lunch table one day that, hey, this is happening, and wasn't this pretty amazing? And I think we all had sufficiently differing yet sufficiently similar responses to it as well. So we thought this would be a good conversation among the three of us to share with our listeners. Griffin, an assistant editor at Commonweal and our Garvey Writing Fellow, has written about the exhibit for the Commonweal website. Now, Griffin, since you've already written on Giacometti, I'm wondering if first you could give a kind of a quick primer on him. Sure, I'd be very happy to. So Giacometti was, as you said, he was Swiss-born. He was born in a city called Borgo Nuovo, which is in Switzerland. He grew up speaking Italian. His father was a painter. He took up painting from an early age. And so to become a more famous painter, to become more well-known, he decided to move to Paris. It's interesting because we know him mostly for his sculptures, but he really, he set out to become a painter. But when he got to Paris, he became acquainted with some of the avant-garde sculpture movements there, pioneered by people like Constantine Brancusi, Pablo Picasso, And he began sculpting. And so generally, he's best known for three different kinds of works. He's got these early surrealist sculptures that he did in the 20s. He's also got the very famous skinny sculptures. And he's also got uh, busts of people's faces. So those are the three main things. He also continued painting. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things about the show at the Guggenheim is they really got a huge quantity of paintings, uh, which is not typical for retrospectives on Giacometti. And it's interesting, I was listening to the audio guide, which is laid over with many of Giacometti's different writings and quotations, and he says, painting for him came naturally. It was easy for him. And it was really sculpture where he had to strive. That's where he found the most artistic creativity. He said, I was really bad at sculpting. And so that's why he <laughs> he said to challenge myself, that's why I'm going to do more sculpting. I also wanted to just say, and this is this I found interesting too, that his sculptures have become um, some of the most expensive ever sold. This is really interesting. So the critic John Berger said that Giacometti wore his symbolic poverty more naturally than most monks. That is, Giacometti, he lived at least uh, when he left home, he was very poor. But towards the end of his career, he'd become wildly successful. So he had already had a show at the Guggenheim before his death. 
But the same studio that he rented as a, a 20-year-old in Paris, this tiny, filthy studio, which has just been restored by the Fondation Giacometti in Paris, he stayed there for his entire life. So even as, after he, he achieved uh, you know, international acclaim, financial success, he still had the same routine. It's really interesting if you read the New York Times review of the show, Jason Farrago kind of points this out and, and says, remember how dirty Giacometti's studio was. And in your review, Griffin, you talk about a number of pieces in the exhibit. And I guess just having given us that general overview to get us started, maybe you could talk specifically uh, about a couple of those works uh, that you had mentioned. I think uh, you would uh, spend particular time on Suspended Ball and the Cube. So maybe you could tell the listeners something about those. Those were the two that struck me the most. Again, they come from that first surrealist period. So we're talking uh, the end of the 1920s, the beginning of the 1930s. The whole idea with surrealism or the, the surrealism that Giacometti wanted to practice was this idea that one has to go deep within the soul, deep within the psyche, and kind of find symbolic shapes or objects that represent almost uncommunicable or incommunicable concepts. So, you know, if I'm feeling ornery one day, you know, I look inside myself and I find, I don't know, a spiked ball or something. So that, that's kind of the idea. And I thought that suspended ball was so interesting because it gets at one of Giacometti's primary preoccupations throughout his life, which was his solitude. He had this famous inability to make contact with other people. And that came out uh, especially in a, a variety of sexual neuroses. Uh, so he was famously involved with prostitutes throughout his entire life, though he was married. So Suspended Ball is this really interesting attempt to represent what he thinks of as his existential solitary condition. So it consists of just two shapes. There's the suspended ball of the title, and then there's a curved, almost banana-shaped crescent on the bottom. And they're in a metal cage, which doesn't have bars, it doesn't have a fence around it, but it's just, think of it as almost a, a three-dimensional cubed plane where you just see the outlines. Uh, sort of a wire box. Yeah, sort of like, exactly, sort of like a wired box. And it becomes a kind of stage for his sculptures throughout his life. But so the ball hangs down just over the crescent and is almost touching it. And so it looks, I mean, it looks really obviously sexual. I think in the article I call it, you know, the comically sexualized yeah. mm -hmm. suspended ball. Because it's really funny to see. I don't know why it makes me laugh, but there, you know, it's, there's nothing else. It's this dangling ball. And if you look closely at it, it's very interesting. There's a gap of about... I don't know, what would you say? A, couple uh, a millimeter? I, it, it, you do have to look very closely. Yeah, you really have to look closely, but it actually hangs with great precision, the ball that is, above the crescent. So it's like at the very center of this piece, which is so funny, which obviously reminds us of sex, it's very poignant because he's got this little separation that he can't quite overcome. And I found that really moving. So he can kind of... Sh the artwork in that sense, to me, it does something interesting. It shifts from a kind of comedy to a kind of poignancy. And I think that's something too, Griffin, now that you mention it, just observing some of the other exhibit goers there sort of uh, standing before this piece, they felt something humorous about it. And you could sort of see it in the reactions in their faces. But then there was a slight change of expression when I think they began to get to sort of the essence of the piece that yeah. you're describing there. And that itself was sort of interesting to see. Yeah, it's actually kind of sad. That's the thing with Giacometti is he's almost like a tragic figure. Like, that's what's so interesting about the exhibit. It, you really are able to kind of come into contact with this personality, with this, it's almost like a person's soul is on display. But that was the idea of surrealism, to make the soul 
available to make it almost three dimensional in sculpture.、Mm-hmm. So you say, well, how am I going to sculpt the soul?、Mm-hmm. You can't just draw a you know, picture and have <laughs> or have like a, a human representation. You got to have something more more strange and more、uh, I don't know, more challenging. Sure, yeah. Sure. How about the cube then itself? The, right. The, the other piece. So the cube. I guess if the suspended ball begins with comedy, the, the cube very you know very differently.、Uh, let's call it contrastingly begins with almost impenetrable sadness. Like it's. Let me just describe it. It's this. It's not actually a cube. <laughs> it's more like a polyhedron. So it's got multiple faces. And multiple angles.、Uh, it almost looks like a big crystal, like a big,、um, almost like a big head. He said, "Well, maybe this is just a, a, a representation of a giant's head," and it just kind of sits on the floor. And the shape itself is actually drawn from a famous engraving called "Melancholy" by Albrecht Durer, the famous German engraver during the Renaissance. And it's this famous symbol of sadness. And you can see in the Durer print. You have the shape, and then you've got this, you know, winged woman who kind of sits with her chin on her hand, looking sad. And this is Giacometti's forlornness, his sadness, his、uh, the way that his head is just a kind of massive block.、And、he made it just after his father's death, so it's, it's very possibly a response to his father's death. And if you look at it closely, you can see that it's not just that it's sad, but it's also kind of violent. It's got、uh, scratches all along the sides. And it's also got this very cryptic face carved into it. So again, yeah, I kind of I get the same sort of sense from this: is that this is Giacometti representing himself at a very weak point,、hmm. a very vulnerable point. Sure. Yeah. So it's I found it quite moving. Now there was another piece there too. Well, I guess a, a pair of pieces loosely referred to as disagreeable objects. Right. God, I hated those. <laughs> <laughs> And then it's interesting. One of them has the subtitle "Disagreeable Object for to be thrown out." Yeah.、Uh, yeah. So it's like he's he wants you to hate them. <laughs> I remember we were having a lunch conversation about disagreeable object a couple of weeks ago, and this was before I had seen the exhibit. And I thought that's such a silly thing to name a piece of art, and there's no way I'm going to have such a such a visceral reaction when I actually see it. But I saw it, and I thought. That's horrible. <laughs> well, maybe maybe now we can sort of explain to listeners just why it's horrible. Because what does it look like, Lucy? Do you want to take this one? <laughs> it's long. It's made of wood. There are actually a couple of these, but it's sort of again, it's almost banana shaped, but very large, maybe two and a half feet long. Yeah. And at one end, it has this very round knob, and then it has this long banana thing. Sort of a long cylinder that tapers and curves at the end, and at the end it has little spikes or bumps. Almost the way you would see there, you know, if you think of nails being put into the end of a baseball bat or something yeah, like that. that there's yeah, a quality yeah. like that, but it's way more disgusting. It's far more disgusting. It's truly revolting. It definitely looks like a weapon and maybe some kind of sexual weapon. It definitely is highly sexualized. Yeah,、uh, and it's also.、Um, How do I say this? Scatological. Yes.、Uh, <laughs> let's say. Yeah.、Um, it looks like、uh, you know、uh, something that one would defecate, or something that I, I called in my my piece when I wrote about it, like the detritus of his soul,、mm-hmm. uh, the most gross thing you could possibly imagine. Made all the more disturbing, and then made in a variety of media. So there's a bronze edition of it. There's a plaster one. There's a wooden one. And it just—it's like these fine materials shouldn't be used for such a disgusting thing. There's something very much of the shadow there too, or it's something very primal too that, that that comes through when you're looking at it. And it is—I mean, it does in a much different way than looking at women with their throat cut. There is a 
more revulsion, I think, is the immediate response yeah. to it. Revulsion, yeah. yeah. But it's interesting that he solicits these mm-hmm. responses from objects that we know they're just sculptures. Like, they're not going to hurt us. And yet, like, they're... They're just so creepy. Like they're <laughs> like they're just gross. Yeah, this is something that probably you must see to appreciate if that's the yeah. word. Griffin, in your essay, you say this about the final part of Giacometti's life in making art, and I'm gonna read a passage. The last fifteen years of Giacometti's life were driven by a single all-consuming passion. Like Christian philosophers in the Middle Ages, he intuited that the very source, the animating principle of a person's entire being, could be detected in the spark that flashes forth from their eyes. Right up until his death, Giacometti worked for hours each day in his cramped studio, dedicating himself to discovering the truth of the people seated before him. Using just a few live models, Giacometti produced an almost never-ending series of busts and portraits like a curve approaching infinity that came nearer and nearer to approximating the fathomless mystery of their faces. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that fathomless mystery of their faces. It's such a provocative and evocative line, because that's something that struck me pretty powerfully as well. As Lucy was saying, there's so many different busts and portraits, so many faces. And Giacometti just went on for the last 10 or 15 years of his life just repeating in painting and in sculpture the facial composition of the the figures that he had seated before him. He was trying to discover something within them, a kind of mystery that exists. And he's really drawn to it. He's drawn to being in the presence of other people. And he wants to get it right. He would say, you know, I'm striving to get a perfect, as, as clear as I can or as close as I can to reality, to what they're actually like. What for me is so interesting, and I talk about the kind of medieval roots of this, is how similar it is to Dante, how Giacometti views the human face in much the same way that Dante does. And I was reminded of a book that I I reviewed for Commonweal a couple years ago called Reading Dante's Comedy as Theology by a theologian slash literary critic slash scholar at, at Notre Dame called Vittorio Montemaggi. And Vittorio argues that for Dante, the way to come into contact with God is by staring deeply into another person's eyes. And he says that I would ask my students to do this in class. I would say, let's see how we're starting to look at each other here in the podcasting studio. We're getting a little freaked out. Yeah, but, yeah. Sit back a little, girl. Yeah. No, but because, because you never do it. It's something that we as human beings, we find very difficult to do to actually sit and gaze into the face of another human being because it's so full of wonder. It's so full of mystery. And Giacometti was drawn to this idea. And it's interesting that it was an idea that other thinkers at the same time, around about the same time, are kind of thinking about. So there's Emmanuel Levinas, who has this famous ontology of the face, where the face represents, you know, the being of that person. And it actually becomes um, the basis of his ethics. So the way that I can care for another person, the way that I can come to love another person is by staring deeply into their eyes, seeing them. Not as other, but almost without a mask. And same thing for uh, the, you know, the Jewish theologian Martin Buber, who has the famous concept of the I-thou relationship. Mm-hmm. That is all about relationship. And I think for Giacometti, somebody who was so lonely for his entire life, so frustrated sexually, though he was married, so apart from everything, including the result that he wanted to achieve in his art, this is the one moment where he kind of breaks through. And he's able to say, oh, I can sit with a person for 15 minutes and just look at them. And that's really beautiful. And so he's almost, when you look at his sculptures and you look at his paintings, it's almost like he's caressing 
the face that's in front of him to the clay. If he can't touch them physically, you know, because it would be pretty weird <laughs> to go and to rub somebody's face, but that's almost like what he's doing. And I saw a kind of like, if there's any example of divinity in Giacometti's work, this is where it really shines through. This is kind of how God, I would imagine, looks at us. So you could imagine God looking at Adam. Hmm. Um, and so, but the medieval philosophers, and you know, especially the Christian ones, they kind of intuited this. That's what all the medieval love poems are about, looking into the lover's eyes, considering their mouth. It's all about the face. Mm. So something that I really appreciated about the faces as opposed to the sculpture was that it really genuinely felt to me like Giacometti was trying to get the essence of the people he was looking at, regardless of their gender. And mm. the sculptures seemed so gendered to me. Like I said, I could always tell if it was a woman or a man. And sometimes, especially the breasts and the hips on the figures were so much more pronounced than, mm. than they are in real life. So looking at these sculptures and seeing how he repeatedly tried to get at the essence of a person, sometimes painting their face totally black, and it looked like he had just applied so much paint that it was almost, the paintings were almost three-dimensional. I could see that when he was painting individuals, it didn't matter to him whether mm. the person was a woman or a man. And it made me feel more seen in a, in a way. Hmm. Like if he had painted me, he wouldn't have just seen like a young woman necessarily. He would have seen like hmm. a, like a young woman in America who's a millennial. He would have mm -hmm. seen me for the essence of my being. a person. Yeah. Yeah. Griffin, you, you talk about, uh, you mentioned the critic John Berger in your piece as well, who remarked that uh, Giacometti, Berger thought that had Giacometti lived in an earlier era, he would have been a religious artist. What do we think of this? What is it in his work? I mean, you've touched on some of it, but what is it in his work over three distinct periods of surrealism, kinetic sculpture, and existentialism, and then this serene consideration of the human face that you talk about? What would lead Berger to suggest such a thing? And, and do we agree? I don't know. I'll just I'll speak for Berger himself. And Berger wrote this very short essay after Giacometti's death where he says he worked fully with the mental conceptions and the existential concerns that were central to his age. So Giacometti's born in the 20th century, a time where you've got the crumbling of religious certainties, two world wars, massive rise of consumerism. And Giacometti confronts these things. He doesn't run away from them. So I think that's kind of what Berger meant is that He's interested in the deepest questions that his age is posing. And before that would have been religious questions in the 20th century. It's not that he has to go and invent questions about God. It's that he sees all around him religion fading and he wants to take that seriously. But I would even go one step further than Berger and say, Giacometti in a way is a religious artist. Uh, and you think of the origin of the word religion, which comes from religio, right? Ligare, which means to bind in Latin. So religion is something that binds you to divinity. It's a set of practices. And that's what Giacometti's art was. It was just a set of daily practices. He woke up every day in his studio. He began working. He would sit for hours with people. He would take a walk. And then he would get back to it, even failing a lot. And so I found it very inspiring that he's almost like, you know, I call him in the piece, he's almost like a monk or almost like the psalmist. He's somebody who he's used to trying again and again and again through this kind of daily repetition. And that's what we do in prayer. We always pray very badly. I think we never really get it right. And I think Giacometti, he's like, when I make a sculpture, I never really get it right. It's almost a prayer. Berger famously called Giacometti's sculptures almost like physical prayers. I thought that was, you know, a really cool way of thinking about it. But whether or not he's religious, I don't really know. What does it mean to be religious today? 
It's a bigger question. <laughs> a question for another episode, yeah. I think. Okay, thanks, uh, Lucy Grindon, our Commonweal intern, and Griffin Olenek, who is our Garvey Writing Fellow and Assistant Editor at Commonweal. Uh, you can read more about Giacometti's work in Griffin's essay, Modeling Mystery, on the Commonweal website. The Giacometti exhibit runs through September 12th at New York City's Guggenheim Museum. Commonweal Podcast was produced by our community and events manager, Megan Ritchie, and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. David Dalt did the editing. We'll be back soon with the next episode of the Commonweal Podcast. If you like what you've heard, we have extended versions of these segments either through our website or on your favorite podcast feed. This is Dominic Preziosi. Thanks for listening.